Welcome to Will Will We Make Make It it Out Alive? Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. Welcome to the first episode of season two. We're so excited to be back. Oh my. I bet you will be so excited for all the puns and great dad jokes Mm. we have in this new season. You're welcome. Speaking of which, (laughs) season two is all about our food system, and the social, environmental, and economic impacts, and how food justice and food sovereignty are important in helping to address food access and equity. This is episode one, What the Heck and Heck is Up with Our Food System. This season, we're switching things up a little. First, we're going to be interviewing real live people instead of fake ones or dead ones i mean i mean actually instead of us just researching the to- a topic and talking about it oh yeah that's what we meant second we're moving to a thematic season over never-ending episodes in the same season this season's theme is about food systems in the pacific northwest food access and food sovereignty format wise we will be releasing a new episode every other tuesday so that's Every other Tuesday, not the first Tuesday of every month. Also, in case you were wondering, our next episode will be January 18th. Good job. We will release five episodes this season. Then we'll have a break. It'll be a short one, we promise. Followed by the next season. Spoiler alert, it's going to be all about the Washington State Sustainability in Prisons Project. Yeah. Third... We're going to try and bring more social and environmental justice into the conversation. And we do acknowledge that we are two white women that both have privilege and bias. Our goal is to be inclusive, help our communities tell their stories from various perspectives, and take a stand against violence and hate. We firmly believe that environmental justice and social justice are intertwined, and you cannot have one without the other. This season, we sat down via Zoom, and chatted with people in several organizations that are all working to help promote food security and increased access to fresh, local, culturally appropriate foods in the Pacific Northwest. In addition, we will learn more about our overall food systems and some of the challenges to accessing food. Our interviewees include people who are working on the front lines, trying to ensure that everyone has access to food in our communities. We will learn about ways that you can volunteer to grow and share food, or how to share other skills with your community to ensure that everyone has access to food. Today, we will be interviewing Nicole Garden with the Washington State Department of Agriculture to learn more about the food system in the Pacific Northwest. But first, we're going to set the stage for food systems and some of the problems that crop up in ours. Some options for solutions and how we move from where we are to where we need to be. Hey, Amy. What? Dare I say. Why do melons have fancy weddings? Because they can't elope. Mm -hmm. See, sometimes when we have the same Facebook friends, then I see the jokes too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Darren. (laughs) Yeah. For that dad joke. All right, moving right along. Today, first, we'd like to talk a little bit about our conventional food system. Our conventional food system can generally be defined as the actions of producing, processing, packaging, transporting, distributing, and consuming food, and associated food and food system wastes. Mmm, that's a mouthful of Mm. food-related processes. Oh, boy. According to the Future of Food website, quote, Today, world agriculture is facing major challenges, including how to feed a growing world population, how to reduce rural poverty in the world, and how to manage ecosystem goods and services in light of global environmental change, unquote. Some of the issues with our food system include the governance and economics of food production, its sustainability, the degree to which we waste food, how food production affects the natural environment, and the impact of food on individual and population health. One of the biggest issues with the current food system is the profit and commodification of our food. Without a focus on sustainability and social justice, the current production model requires maximizing efficiency in order to lower consumers' costs and increase overall production, and therefore profit. Mm. Today, we will touch on these topics, as well as alternative food systems, a little bit about food sovereignty and food justice. But first, we'll go into a little more detail on the various aspects of the conventional food system, starting with production. 
Agricultural production is the use of cultivated plants or animals to produce products for sustaining or enhancing human life. I like that. (laughs) Some of the challenges to operating local, small, family-owned and operated farms include increased movement into cities, an aging population, farm consolidation, land conversion, especially near urban areas, and changing weather patterns. The global food system works to reduce costs, so food production is moved to areas where economic costs, such as labor and taxes, are lower or regulations more lax. All about profits again. Mm -hmm. So next we'll touch a little bit on the processing and packaging. The main purpose of agricultural processing is to minimize the qualitative and quantitative deterioration of the material after harvest. Mm. Food processing methods help reduce food waste and improve food preservation. So... On the one hand, they might not be all evil. Mm -hmm. Food processing began when the number of consumers started growing rapidly and the demand for cheap and efficient calories climbed while there was a nutritional decline. Uh, Yeah. Food packaging provides a way to make food safe, shelf-stable, and clean. Foods can travel long distances and still be good when it arrives to consumers. But unfortunately, most packaging is single-use and not recyclable. If you want to learn more about the history and dangers of plastic and plastic recycling, check out episodes 18 and 21 from last season. Yeah, and then we have transportation and distribution. Food transportation is simply the movement of food from farm to processors to distributors to consumer stores. Some of the benefits of transporting food long distances include providing food for densely populated areas, out-of-season varieties, and allowing regions to focus on their unique growing characteristics for specific produce. So again, it seems like those are good things potentially, right? Mm -hmm. Especially providing food to densely populated areas where we no longer have food available. That doesn't seem like a horrible idea. Yeah. And food distribution is a link between producers and processors and those who sell the food. So a distributor brings together goods from many different producers and processors to be sold in bulk. Trucks, trains, and boats are the most common methods for food transportation and shipment right now. Between issues with container ships sitting out at sea to availability of freight haulers and empty grocery store shelves, people are probably more concerned with food transportation and distribution now more than in the past. Hashtag fact. The term food miles refers to the distance food travels from where it is produced to where it is purchased or consumed. One study suggests that fresh fruits and veggies grown in the U.S. travel roughly 1,500 food miles on average before they are sold. Wow. That's that's pretty far. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. Hey, Amy. Did you hear the joke about the peanut butter? No, I did not, thankfully. Uh, Well, I'm not going to tell you. You might spread it. (laughs) we're gonna have to find some sound effects for these i'm afraid all right finally let's talk about food consumption and food waste food consumption is the part we all participate in we all eat it encompasses the ideas of family traditions cultural heritage time dietary needs budget and personal preference for cooking it can be when we cook at home or when we eat out According to the USDA, food loss and waste can be defined as edible amount of food post-harvest that is available for human consumption but is not consumed for any reason. So that could include loss from natural shrinkage, mold, pests, or inadequate climate control. The cause of food waste are linked to limited shelf life, aesthetic standards in terms of color, shape, size, and variety in demand. Consumer waste is often caused by poor purchase and meal planning, excess buying influenced by overlarge portioning and package sizes, confusion over labels such as best buy and use by dates, and poor in-home storing. Food waste in the U.S. is estimated to be between 30 and 40 percent of the food supply. Wow, that's a lot. Right? Food that is wasted could have helped feed families in need instead of being sent to landfills. Exactly. In addition, according to the U.S. EPA, food and food packaging make up almost half of all municipal solid waste. That's also a huge amount. I mean, it makes up quite a bit of my waste. Right. 
Yeah, so land, water, labor, energy, and other inputs are used in the producing, processing, transporting, preparing, storing, and disposing of discarded food. So it's just basically at every level there's waste and it adds up on multiple levels at each level. Yeah, it's kind of depressing. Yeah. I think it's time for a cat fact. That's happier. Yeah. Amy, do you have a cat door? Uh, We do not, actually. Oh, well... Did you know that Sir Isaac Newton is credited with creating the concept for the pet door? No, I did not. So let's talk about some of the environmental impacts of our food system. Agriculture plays a major role in environmental degradation and pollution, but obviously we still need to eat, right? I mean, I'm not ready to give up eating. I'm not either. Releasing large volumes of manure, chemicals, mm. yeah, antibiotics, Mm. and growth hormones Mm. (laughs) into our water sources Mm. creates a risk both to our environment and to our human health. Yeah, it's just so confusing because exactly I still need to eat, but that's a lot of bad stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Industrialized agriculture is not quite the bargain it seems to be. It creates ecological issues through fertilizer runoff, non-point source pollution, soil (laughs) mismanagement, greenhouse gas emissions, and ecological destruction, costing the environment the equivalent of about $3 trillion U.S. per year. Whoa. I wonder what we could do with that money instead. (laughs) Lots of stuff. I don't know. Maybe be proactive against Mm. an onslaught of natural disasters that are costing us a bunch of money also. Yeah. Yep. People can be exposed to chemical fertilizers and pesticides through the food they consume or from directly working in or near those fields or from driving on a road coming back from camping with the windows down. Oops. Resulting in adverse health effects. Some pesticides are endocrine disruptors. Exposure to these chemicals can also have adverse impacts to wildlife health. Mm. You know, poor animals. The environmental impacts of the conventional food systems are largely based on the availability of inexpensive fossil fuels, which is necessary for mechanized agriculture, the manufacture or collection of chemical fertilizers, the processing of food products, and the packaging of food. Basically, it's a lot of the same issues we see in plastics, and a lot of the fossil fuel and plastic industries are used within the conventional agricultural system. Additionally, there's large amounts of water and other resources that are needed to grow and process food. More than a quarter of the total freshwater consumption per year in the United States is used to grow wasted food. Reducing discarded food avoids wasting water, oil, and other natural resources that go into growing and delivering the food. You'd better believe it. Costs such as those to purify contaminated drinking water or treat diseases related to poor nutrition also go unaccounted for by the industry, meaning that communities, individuals are bearing these costs. Intensive livestock farming results in animals with genetic similarities, which makes them more susceptible to pathogens and diseases. And when they're kept in close proximity, can easily spread among them. It can serve as a bridge for pathogens and zoonotic diseases, allowing them to be passed from animals to humans. Wait a minute. Where have we heard this before? Swine flu? Avian flu? Mad cow? Coronavirus? Oh! (laughs) And then there's the waste management. According to Foodprint, The amount of animal waste produced by livestock and poultry in factory farms is almost 13 times more than what is produced by the entire U.S. population. Wow. 13 times more. Wow. That's cray. Yeah. And they don't manage their waste like we manage our human waste, so also terrifying. Yeah. So these bad boys are busy producing methane, nitrous oxide, both of which are greenhouse gases, in addition to ammonia, hydrogen sulfide. The U.S. EPA estimates that nearly three-quarters of the country's ammonia pollution comes from livestock facilities. That smells yummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not really. No. Finally, looking to the future of food, climate change must also be considered. According to MIT, quote, Climate change impacts on food systems are complex and vary from place to place affecting the poorest and most vulnerable the most. In some regions, climate change is already causing crop yields to fall. Higher temperatures, changes in precipitation patterns, and increased weeds, pests, and crop and animal disease all threaten food supply. 
Floods and droughts caused by climate change also threaten food production. Sea level rise will flood agricultural fields and important infrastructure and will increase the salinity of many coastal aquifers, making them unsuitable for irrigation. Additionally, there is growing evidence that climate change will decrease the nutritional quality of many staple crops like wheat, rice, and corn. End quote. Wow. Meanwhile, the International Panel for Climate Change's latest report states the global food system provides employment for 1 billion people and is responsible for about 34% of total greenhouse gas emissions. In the journal Science, researchers found that greenhouse gas emissions from food production alone would cause 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming by 2050 and 2 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Uh-oh. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that transitioning to a sustainable food system is critical for addressing these global challenges. Exactly. Hey, Amy, what did the baby corn say to the mama corn? I have no idea. Where's my popcorn? (laughs) Oh, my. Let's talk a little bit about how COVID has impacted food access. Mm, All right. According to UW News from July 2021... The need for food assistance has continued to rise. Before COVID-19, about 29% of respondents reported using food assistance. In wave one of the survey, food assistance use increased to 33% of respondents. But by wave two, food assistance was reported by 42% of the sample size. Wow. That's close to half. And a lot of those people were first-time access. Mm-hmm. I think that calls for another cat fact. <laughs> did you know that the majority of cats are southpaws? No, I did not. I don't know what that means. Left-handed. Left pod. Oh. Studies have shown that a cat's left paw is usually their dominant paw. Have you noticed this in your cats? No, but I'm definitely about to conduct a study and report back. You better back. report back. I'm really interested to see if that's true. Well, let's talk about alternative food systems a little bit. Sounds great. We've heard a lot about conventional food systems, and alternative food systems are those basically that fall outside of the conventional food systems, often with the goal of making the food system more sustainable and improving access to fresh, healthy, culturally appropriate foods. So a few examples of this would be local, organic, and cooperative food systems that incorporate the the principles of food sovereignty and food justice, and things such as wild food foraging, gleaning, and dumpster diving. The rest of the episodes in the season will focus on some real-life examples of alternative food systems in the Pacific Northwest. Simply put, food justice, sovereignty, and security are specific goals used by organizations and policymakers to discuss broader community food security concerns. The definitions shape how policymakers perceive a community's needs and are often the first line of defense against entrenched interests and systemic failings. In our traditional food system, low-income and racially and ethnically diverse communities often disproportionately face food insecurity in urban centers. Globalized food production results in the loss of traditional food systems and has a negative impact on population health, ecosystems, and culture. So let's talk a little bit about food sovereignty. According to the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, Food sovereignty is the right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods, and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. Right? Framing food as a human right implies that individuals can require the state and communities to respect, protect, and fulfill their need for appropriate access to sufficient food of an acceptable quality. Hey, Jen. What? I got a joke for you. You do? Yeah. What? Yeah. What is it? What do you call a fake noodle? What? An impasta. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, I'm very excited that you just told me a joke, but hey, Amy, why did the students eat their homework? I don't want to know. Because the teacher said it was a piece of cake. You can't see my face. It's funny. But it's shaking no, like it wants to escape. No, it's funny. I love cake. We're about to talk to Nicole here, but 
In addition to listening to the other four episodes in this season and becoming involved in some of your local organizations, yes. you can also become more food sovereign or support others in their efforts by learning more about food sovereignty and by buying and planting culturally relevant foods. We'll have some links on our website to maybe some TikTokers that we might follow. We don't know what TikTok is because we're too old, but if we did, these would be the TikTokers that we would follow or we might have gotten addicted to TikTok based off of. Maybe. (laughs) Today, we'd like to welcome Nicole Garden with the Washington State Department of Agriculture. Welcome. Thank you guys so much for having me today. We're going to get right into this. How did you become interested in our food system? During high school, I was allowed to do a senior expedition. I decided to go from Denver to Eugene, Oregon to go work at Last Valley Educational Center, which is a sustainable farm in Oregon. I went there because I wanted to see what communal life was like, and then I ended up digging, growing my own vegetables, and it was really the first time that I was able to grow my own. And growing up in a food-insecure household myself, it was kind of eye-opening. Having enough power and control to be able to produce my own food was amazing. It was transformative. After that, I ended up going to the Evergreen State College, studying agroecology and sustainable agriculture and food policy. Through Evergreen, I was able to do an internship with a school garden. We did a lot of path chipping and fun little, you know, activities just to keep busy. We were using these cardboard boxes from the school lunch program. And as I'm sitting here throwing wood chips on them, I'm starting to read the ingredients there. And it just felt like such a juxtaposition. You know, we were doing all this great work in this third acre garden, growing all this nutritious produce for the kids to snack on or just with this one event. Yet the food that we were feeding them in the school itself was just all processed corn, soy products. I wondered how we can do better. And came to realize that if I wanted to see change, that I had to be part of the systems that make those change. So that's kind of how I got into awesome. government. Awesome. Wow. So what do you do with the Washington State Department of Agriculture? Currently, I work with the Food Assistance Program. We administer six state and federal programs, I think it is at this point. Those programs are the Emergency Food Assistance Program, which is a USDA program that provides food and funding to food banks and, and meal programs, and the Commodity Supplemental Food Program, which is a program that's specific for seniors that are filled with foods that are deemed a complete meal that provides a little bit of operational funding for food banks as well. And then we have a state-run program called, not, don't be confused, it's not the Emergency Food Assistance Program, it's Emergency Food Assistance Program. Uh, this is the state program, and that's just funding. And it's really a flexible program to provide food banks and food pantries enough funding to pay for additional food. We have a EFAP tribal program, which can either go to support tribal food pantries or tribal voucher programs, which is providing vouchers for food, um, very similar to like the old food stamp program. Okay. I also am more focused on our farm to community aspect. I run our farm to food pantry initiative. It's not a full program yet, but we're hoping to change that. Started in 2014 as a pilot project with our partner Harvest Against Hunger, which is a Seattle-based nonprofit. And we were trying to figure out how to connect farmers with food pantries so we can get some more glean product and do some food rescue. Mm -hmm. The great thing is, is with our partnership with Harvest Against Hunger, they're able to provide that funding up front. So farmers are getting paid early in the season before the product's even reaching the hands of those hunger relief organizations. So it helps them pay for the seeds and amendments and tools, all the things that are needed in order to really get off the ground. Mm-hmm. We're doing some work with taking the data that we collect on the pounds. If you know anything about food banks, we measure things in pounds. Mm-hmm. It's not like water and lettuce, you know. <laughs> right. We just see them as pounds. So what we're trying to do We have some offshoots of the Farm to Food Pantry group. We're trying to take the data that we receive and transform the pounds into more of the dietary guidelines for Americans and seeing how we're meeting people's daily recommended portions of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. What's one exciting thing too, though, is this initiative is actually going beyond fruits and vegetables. Starting this year, we are allowing 30% of all food pantries allocation to go through local purchases of meat, eggs, dairy, and grains for the first time. So that's pretty exciting. Wow. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. super exciting for uh, people that don't otherwise necessarily have access to that, especially. Exactly. Yeah. Protein is a hard thing to acquire in the food banking world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it also really marries really well with another program that USDA is providing, and it's the TFAP. So it's within the TFAP program. 
PFAP, again, is the emergency food assistance program. They provide food and funding, and that food is typically purchased from what's in abundance in the United States, right? It's gotcha. all U.S. food. If there's an abundance of pork, the USDA goes out for bid for that. Sometimes that's processed food, but with the trade mitigation, so, you know, the tariffs that were put on exports, the USDA decided to start buying up that food that would normally be exported. So it was the first oh. time, really, in a long time that we had a consistent supply from the USDA of fresh and frozen foods, huh. and it's continued through the Build Back Better. Do you think because of the demand kind of identified there that the they will try to continue to support this or do you think that it will go away because the tariffs aren't there anymore? No, I think that USDA, especially during the pandemic, has really recognized that these foods are needed. But the TFAP Farm to Food Bank projects is a little different because it's not paying farmers at all. The intention of it is to help solve food waste and do some food waste recoveries. Uh, okay. The funding only goes to support the harvest processing packaging or transportation of unharvested, unprocessed, or unpackaged commodities that are donated from agricultural producers, processors, or distributors. Huh. So it's a little bit different, but it does marry really well with the farm to food pantry because as I said about the gleaning, you know, with those relationships, donations and gleaning opportunities come about uh, four times as often as we're seeing four times more product coming through those channels. And so to be able to provide the tools to harvest those crops or the um, ability to process those crops into ready to eat meals like mm -hmm. soups and sauces is right. key. We've had some really great stories come out of it with a local restaurant who didn't think that they would be able to survive the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, one of our hunger relief organizations that received the Farm to Food Bank grant was able to employ them to process that oh, donated product, cool. which kept them in business wow. through the pandemic, which was really amazing. Yeah. And then also, in turn, they were able to provide this really easy and accessible product to food pantry clients, which was amazing. Wow. But we're also seeing how we can support farmers more with this. So this year, we put in our state plan that we could pay farmers directly for the packing and harvesting costs. We're planning, planning to roll those grants out probably within the next month because we just found out about the funding level we're receiving. So we also do have a SNAP education grant through the Department of Health. And essentially, um, we have that to do some nutrition material support and to help with policy systems and environmental changes that are happening at food pantries. Part of that goes to um, create a senior nutrition newsletter, and that goes out in the CSFP, which is that Commodity Supplemental Food Program boxes. Mm -hmm. We also have done a lot of recipes and worked with Chef Kwan Hong, who is the governor's executive resident chef, and he's been supporting us in making not only foods that are specific to TFAP commodities, but are also... Washington grown focus. So we're going to take that a step further this coming year and create what we're deeming the meal kit toolkit. I just got final approval on that. So I'm excited, like right before this call. So I was excited to share that. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and essentially that's going to be kind of train the trainer materials where mm -hmm. we're going to provide, if you've ever had a meal kit, a recipe card with step-by-step -step instructions for clients, as well as train the trainer materials for food pantries so they can build those boxes. Okay. We're going to be purchasing spices and sauces from local Washington companies and providing those to the food pantries. We're going to attempt to reutilize some of those TFAP foods, but also we're going to do some local food purchases to create a meal kit. So cool. that's pretty exciting. I'm really excited for those change. And part of that wouldn't be possible without that step education grant that we get. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, you do a lot of stuff. That's, that's really <laughs> How long have you been working for WSDA? Uh, I think I'm like six and a half years right now. So I spent two years with the organic program, helping organic farmers and processors become certified and kind of guide them through the process and the rules and regulations. And then my heart obviously has always been with food assistance programs like school lunches and food assistance. So when I found out that we actually played a role in that and that I had a potential to be part of that Farm to Food Pantry initiative, I jumped on that opportunity. Did you start when it started back in 2014 or did you come on afterwards? I started in 2016 or 17 with food assistance. I can't do that math in my head too hard. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very small at that point. I took it a step further and created a farmer placard that we provide. So it was to help propel the initiative. 
get a little bit more recognition and also to provide both food pantries with a tool to leverage for donations because part of the Farm to Food Pantry initiative is we want that community buy-in. And so we do require only a $500 match right now. It might change in the future. And we want them to get community investment for that $500. And what we're seeing is last year, in fact, WCA paid for 51% of all of those produce purchases and 49% came from community donations, which is amazing. So that community investment is happening. And so donors who donate towards this program also get to utilize this seal. But another key piece is that farmers get to display them at their farmers markets, Mm -hmm. on their website. and really promote their participation and initiative. Nice. How would you define food insecurity and hunger? I would have to go back to the USDA definition, which is lack of consistent access to enough food for every person in the household to live a healthy and active life. But basically, it's like if you're in a position where you have to choose food versus paying bills, I mean, that's food insecurity. And for a lot of people, that's just like a missed day of work or two missed days of work or Mm -hmm. an illness or a car repair you know, it can happen very quickly. How big of an issue is hunger or food insecurity in Washington? So it's kind of a tricky question to ask because during the pandemic, we reduced a lot of barriers by not collecting information because we wanted to make sure that folks could easily access this food and keep distance and keep safe. Distribution models were changing rapidly. We were going from people going into a food bank, maybe even having a shopping model where it felt more like a grocery store Mm -hmm. to people going through drive-through lines and picking up product. While we collected data and we asked for estimates, we find that that data is not very accurate. So I can tell you that in in 2019, Washington State food banks and pantries that were served by our programs, including tribal food pantries and voucher programs, provided about 148.5 million pounds of food to 1.12 million Washingtonians. So that's pretty substantial. But that was the first time in eight years that the number of food pantry visits were below 8 million. So that was, that was actually oh, wow. good. <laughs> and Feeding America, they're one of the big advocates for food assistance in the nation. They reported that in 2019, the overall food insecurity rate was the lowest it had been in 20 things years. Things were looking good pre-COVID. Things were, <laughs> yeah. things were looking better, let's just say. Okay. I hate to say things are looking good when anybody's going hungry, but things are looking better. Right. <laughs> We have lifted that exemption, so this coming year should look a little bit more accurate, although we still think that it's going to be a little skewed. But mm-hmm. I did run some TFAP data for you guys. With TFAP, we just do the bare minimum, which is what USD asked for, which mm-hmm. is household numbers and clients visited. Mm-hmm. So for TFAP in 2021, federal fiscal year that just ended September 30th, we had an average of 200,000 households or 520,000 people served by TFAP supported pantries per month. And so if you were to look at that, it's about 2.3 million visits from October 1st, 2020 to September 30th, 2021. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't include EFAP only pantries, which there are folks who don't participate in both mm-hmm. or the voucher program. So that's just a little small snapshot, mm-hmm. but that's the only like accurate yeah. data that I could really provide. Wow. What are some of the indicators of food insecurity or like how do we determine who's being impacted or going hungry? Is there a way? I think the two factors that you think about is unemployment and poverty. And they were both at the lowest headed into the pandemic, but now we're seeing a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. So in Washington, who's the most likely to be hungry? I think it's families and seniors on a fixed income. I did pull some stats from Feeding America. So they project that 21% of black individuals or one in five black individuals may experience food insecurity compared to 11% of white individuals. So that's one in nine. And then in 2019, so this is pre-pandemic figures, they were one in 12 for white individuals and one in six for Latinos and one in five for black individuals and one in four for Native Americans. So definitely shows inequality within the food system. Definitely. Yep. What are some surprising facts about hunger or food access? You know, we can talk about hunger, but there's also just nutrition deficit. Right. 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 Yeah. We can provide food that has lots of calories, but Mm -hmm. is it nutritious? And then if it's not, then we're seeing some other health disparities like obesity, heart disease, diabetes, things like that come Mm -hmm. from that. Yeah. And one of the things the CDC has suggested to address these disparities has been linking large scale purchasers of fruits and vegetables like hunger relief organizations with local farms and regional food hubs that aggregate and distribute produce. Programs like Farm to Food Pantry are really helping to move the needle on that, I think. And I'd love to see that expand more and more to provide those nutritious foods Mm -hmm. that folks need and really 
rely on from places like this. In a way, it seems like it's kind of a cool time or a good time to be in this because I do think there has been a lot more focus, especially during the pandemic. So it seems like kind of a exciting time to maybe make some good beneficial changes to these systemic issues that we've been dealing with for so long. Definitely. Speaking of which, <laughs> what are some of the impacts of race on access to fresh, healthy, culturally appropriate food? Obviously, food insecurity is experienced in a greater proportion by those groups due to a number of factors. And I, again, structural racism is, is at the heart of it, I think, and discrimination. And so this is where I'm going to bring up that Seattle King County Public Health mm. release. So they had, and this is a little old too, it's 2019, but they released a health and food availability at Food Bank Network report that highlighted some of those inequities in lower income neighborhoods or neighborhoods with a higher percentage of BIPOC folks. So it was pretty obvious there was a lower availability of large food stores and healthy foods. Mm -hmm. Fruit was more expensive than high-income neighborhoods. And one really interesting thing that we kind of listened to and took with us is that not until 300% of the federal poverty level is met do we see food insecurity begin to drop. And that's just overall. But for people of color, that's 400%. Wow. For TFAP, the requirement pre-pandemic was 185% of, of the poverty level. So we took that to heart. And while different communities have different needs, we want to make sure that we are providing access to every community. We have changed our income guidelines for TFAP, which is one thing that we're allowed to do with that federal program. We're not allowed to do that with CSFP. CSFP is stuck at 130. But with TFAP, we did change the income guidelines. So now anyone can receive TFAP commodities if their income is within 400% of the federal poverty level. Wow. Yeah. So that is crazy. I mean, 400% is over the federal poverty level, right? So it's like four times, right? Right. (laughs) Thanks, Jed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the poverty level is either, but that's fascinating that they're seeing food insecurity at that level of income. Yeah. I think it's ridiculously low. Well, it is ridiculously low. I'm just going to tell you what 400% above property was. So for one person, you can come to the food bank if you make an annual income of $51,520. Wow. Or monthly $4,293. If you're a family of three, which is pretty much an average family size, you're looking at $87,840 annual income and $7,320 monthly. Wow. You know, Mm -hmm. that's really reduced a lot of barriers. Mm Mm-hmm. We're all about reducing barriers. That's one thing that this pandemic, again, and one positive for TFAP use had to sign for the food. And now that's not a requirement anymore. Hmm. You used to have to reside in a service area. Say someone works in King County, but they live in Paris County. They wouldn't be able to access that food. Mm -hmm. Now that it's been dissolved, you can receive food anywhere. Uh, We're all about reducing barriers right now and really have to do a lot of education to our food pantries who have been used to collecting this data and ask yourself, why are we collecting this data? What are we needing this for? What's the purpose of this, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. because if you're someone who's maybe an undocumented immigrant, you're not going to want to go and provide your name and address, which is something we have not been able to remove yet because it's still in the USDA TFAP regulations that we have to collect address. That can also mean that you're providing, if you're homeless, that means you're providing the address of the food bank. That's one barrier that we're still trying to reduce, Mm. and we're working with USDA to reduce that. But if you're undocumented, you're not going to want to go to a food bank because they're going to ask you for your ID. They can't anymore, but other (laughs) people were asking for IDs, social security numbers, things like that were just Mm. crazy. Wow. We have done our best to reduce the barriers as much as we possibly can to make sure that everyone can access food if they need to. How does food access differ in urban versus rural settings? Resources in rural areas are very finite. Mm -hmm. Both can have food deserts, but Mm -hmm. food pantries that rely on donors, that's not going to happen as much in those rural areas. They're not as visible, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another thing is transportation of the food. It takes longer to get there. And oftentimes, they're, at least for our food, they're at the tail end of the distribution. So if there is a fresh product or a frozen product, they're less likely to get that. You know, I mentioned the bonus products or the T- mm-hmm. TMP products. Those are, unlike the other products that we give through TFAP, those are not targeted to a certain county. 
their the redistribution site, big areas like Second Harvest or Food Lifeline or Northwest Harvest, they often will not provide those foods just because it's on a time crunch, right? Eggs can only last so long. Milk can only last so long. So they get limited distribution. Also, unfortunately, their storage, their capacity to hold food is a lot less too. And so they can't offer as much to their clients. And on the flip side, grocery stores are also limited and programs through SNAP, like SNAP Produce Match is also not available because a lot of times those are through Safeway or Albertsons. And so if you don't have a Safeway or Albertson is in your community, you can't access that Produce Match program, which will provide you with additional five to ten dollars. Mm-hmm. of produce the next time you visit. So, you know, it, it does limit things. Also, I know this is weird, but Starbucks provides all those little cute little meals that they have yeah. at their stores. Mm-hmm. If those don't get distributed, those get sent to food banks and oh, food really? pantries. And those are really great for especially the houseless population. Right. Uh-huh. Rural areas don't get that. The food pantries are often run by volunteers. There's mm-hmm. often not paid staff and there's less volunteers. But because of that reason, the hours are less. Maybe they're once a month. Maybe they're once a week and they're not getting that multiple access. And maybe they're at a time where because it's volunteer run, that person can only do it at a certain time. And that doesn't meet the needs of the population that needs to access those foods. So I think definitely in rural areas, they have a harder time. I know you've touched on this a little bit, but how has COVID-19 impacted our food system and people's ability to access food? Actually, I think this is one of those things where there's some things that have really kind of been great and there's been additional access. I'm going to get throw out another Feeding America number. They put out a report highlighting the impact of the coronavirus on food insecurity, and it projected that 42 million people or one in eight, including 13 million children or one in six, may experience food insecurity. And many of those people who were most impacted were food insecure prior to the pandemic, which was an interesting mm-hmm. finding, but they are experiencing greater hardship now. So increased funding through Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan Act, and the forthcoming Build Back Better funding has been tremendously helpful in ensuring food banks and pantries can help meet that increased demand. We have grants coming here and there. So some of those grants include we're providing a flexible funding grant through food assistance programs, and that is essentially very open-ended grant. We don't want to prescribe what your community needs, and so mm-hmm. things like local purchases, capacity building, um, when I say capacity building, I mean refrigeration and storage capacity as well as computers and electronic capacity too, because databases is a capacity if you're mm-hmm. keeping all this data. Innovative programs like the farm to freezer kind of concept. Programs like, I don't know if you knew about the CFAP, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Farmer Systems Program or Food Assistance. They changed it a couple of times, <laughs> but essentially they market it as the farm to families boxes. And those were able to provide food to those in need at a really critical time and a lot of food. Mm-hmm. There was issues with it for sure. And I think a lot of those food safety issues weren't thought through enough. And they were providing food to organizations that just didn't have the storage capacity mm-hmm. and food to organizations outside of our traditional hunger relief now. Network. But that actually helped too, because those networks outside were able to reach people who never went to the food bank before. Those outside agencies were able to focus on specific cultures and specific communities that weren't reached in such a direct way before. And so the state legislature did provide WCA with funding to continue this programming outside of our traditional hunger relief network with our We Feed Washington initiative. That's going to be rolling out soon. And essentially, it's going to be that same box concept of fresh products. I think there will be some proteins and and things like that, but they'll be continuing to provide some of those organizations that were providing food to those populations that really weren't reached before for at least, I think, the next year. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the resources available for people that need food? Yeah, I want to reiterate this because I think the first line of defense for food insecure people is SNAP benefits because it gives folks choice, and I think choice is really important. And so some resources available are Washington Connection. It's the website for Washington State. It's an easy way for families and individuals to apply for a variety of services, including food, cash, childcare, long-term care, medical savings programs. So I really encourage if anyone's struggling to connect there because it can connect you to a wide array of resources. Another thing is 211. You can either call or use their website. And that provides the most current comprehensive database of community resources, including food pantries in the state of Washington. They have it through all states. I was going to say that's available in Oregon also. Yeah, it's all states. But it helps connect people to those community resources statewide. 
And we, as a state agency, require all our food pantries and meal programs and tribes served by our programs to register with 211 just so we make sure that people are aware of what's available. And they can find them through there then. Yeah. So changing gears a little bit, let's talk about alternative food systems. What are some alternative food systems? There's this new, well, it's not so new, but I think it's amping up. It's community cupboards and fridges all around the town. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really great energy that's coming about because as long as food's being kept safe, that's my first priority. (laughs) Right. But I think it's a wonderful way to reduce the stigma someone might feel from coming to a food bank. Mm -hmm. And there is a resource there, too. It's called Fridge, like free like fridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that provides a list of all the sites who have registered with them. So that's okay. pretty interesting. Prior to the pandemic, Northwest Harvest in Seattle, they had a Soto community market. They started this with the concept of a no-cost grocery store model. So you go in there and it feels like a grocery store, but you can pick up anything you want and it's completely free. There's no checkout station. There's no income requirements. There's nothing. Oh, wow. And we're seeing those kind of models more and more with other food pantries as well, making it more of a shopping model. And more and more, we're encouraging food pantries to do that. It's not available to all. Space is restricting, but that provides that choice model. Do you know where Northwest Harvest gets the food from that they provide in that market? Like, is it leftover produce? Oh, no. I don't think so. It could be. But Northwest Harvest is part of the Independent Food Network, specifically here in Washington State. They work with a variety of farmers and food distributors to get that food. I don't think that theirs is really focused on donated products so much. So... So what are some important aspects to consider when trying to ensure that people have access to fresh, healthy, and culturally appropriate foods? Don't assume that you know what they want. Mm-hmm. Always engaging the community members themselves, really putting them at the heart of what you're doing. One thing I would love to do with our nutrition work is to get recipes from various communities and from mm-hmm. the people who are attending these food pantries and lift those up and really try to make sure that we're providing that equal access. Mm-hmm. Thinking on a different note too, Orcas Island is an example of one of our farm to food pantry regional agencies that they really are utilizing the funding we're providing them to really sustain their local food system. They're very isolated, obviously, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> especially with the ferry issues that are going right. on. So they are able to really have food sovereignty within their island by being able to purchase those local foods and really decide what they want to feed their people. How would you define food justice, food sovereignty, and food security? I'd say food justice is when everyone has access to nutritious and culturally appropriate foods. And I think food sovereignty could be somewhat subjective. It gets thrown around there a lot. But I think that goes beyond food justice. And again, going back to what I just said, I think it's all about making the community and the people that are being served the heart and the center and their voice is the most important and making sure that they're getting food in the way that they want to and the way that's appropriate for their their communities. One example of that is one of my contractors is Kalispell Tribe and they never received funding from us before, but the pandemic definitely caused them to move the needle. Well, they participate in the Intertribal Buffalo Council And so they have a pack of buffalo there and they wanted to process it. Mm -hmm. Within Washington State, we have regulations. And so it has to typically be processed in a Washington State certified facility. Mm -hmm. But I think a really important thing to think about is tribes are sovereign nations and tribes get to make their own choices. And a lot of people don't think about that. And so they could have their own food code. If it stays on reservation, then they should be able to process that animal the way that they see fit. So Mm -hmm. that was one thing that came about the pandemic. They were, and so they are continuing to do so. I want to see the farm to food pantry reach more of those tribes and really highlight the benefits of being able to purchase food that meets your community's needs. Yeah. How could food sovereignty and food justice help build community. You know, I go back to that work as island example, right? Mm -hmm. So being able to purchase locally and keep things local, it is really important to the clients that are being served that they know that their community is supporting them. In fact, in Ording, one of my SNAP-Ed partners conducted a survey of food pantry clients, and they felt like the food that was being grown there in Ording, which is a pretty vibrant agricultural area, was leaving their community. They were never receiving any oh. of it. And so bringing farm to food pantry there, and that's one of our goals, is to make that awareness that you are being fed locally. Your, mm-hmm. your community is supporting you, and things are being kept local. What aspects of food sovereignty and food justice address some of the issues that our conventional food system has? If you think about the pandemic, there was a lot of bottlenecks, I mean, especially with meat and just various things. We saw empty shelves in regular grocery stores for the first time in a very long time. 
And so making sure that, again, Orcas, making sure that they, they can feed their community with the food that's grown and produced in their community is really important. And it helps that food security component because if you are reliant on your own community's agricultural production, then you don't have to rely so much on outside food systems. <laughs> Or at least that you have something to fall back on. Mm -hmm. I know that we're starting to see that again. Transportation is, is a tough thing right now. And we're starting to see bare shelves again. And really investing in your local community, buying that CSA, buying that quarter of a cow locally is going to make sure that you have food to make it through those times when there's, there's scarcity. I feel like that's a really important message. You know, it wasn't even a thing that you would think about pre-COVID here, I don't think. Well, yeah, I mean, like, it's not even just here nationally, it's like imports as well. And like, there's a nourished food pantry in Paris County. I just saw Sue Potter did a story with one of the local news stations and where she said that she was trying to source some canned product that was canned in China and that the prices have like tripled. Oh, wow to get that product. So, you know, reliance on a local economy and the local growers will help her in the future to keep her pantry full. Mm -hmm. Right now, she's feeling the impacts of having be reliant on that right. global system. Yeah. So what programs or policies are in place to move us towards food sovereignty or food justice in the Pacific Northwest? I think one thing that we have in our favor here in Washington is we have a food policy council. And they really are forward thinking about that. Hmm. It's a diverse group. And I think that if you were going to make some big changes and really focus in on keeping things local, keeping both our economies and our people vibrant and healthy, then we really have to think on a multi-sector basis and really engage folks from all sectors to kind of help solve this problem. Mm -hmm. What does the future of food look like in the Pacific Northwest? Do you think we're moving oh. more local? Do you think we'll continue with the system we're currently in? I think that we're on the right track and some things about this pandemic have highlighted the not only inequities, but also the flaws in our current system. And those are being recognized and realizing that things need to change. So I, I do think that there's been some things brought to the surface that people are actually addressing for the first time. So I think that we're on the right track. Well, and I feel mm -hmm. like we got to highlight any of those little successes. Right. <laughs> the yeah. rest of the pandemic yeah, has just been kind of awful. So yeah, yeah I agree. It's been awful. <laughs> yeah. So how can we move to a system that views food as a, a common good, a basic human right, instead of like a private commodity? I'm going to say that in order to do that, it's, it goes beyond food. I think it goes to people, right? Like yeah. we need to provide people with a living wage. We need to provide access to affordable childcare and housing so people can actually live without having three jobs. Right, right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I really think the focus is not so much on food, but valuing people. And once we start valuing people, then I think that it's, it's an obvious connection that food is, should be provided for everyone. Just mm -hmm. that easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was great talking to you. It was really interesting. Well, thank you for putting awareness out there of food insecurity and, and ways that we can better our food system. So there you have it. The end of the first episode of season two. Time sure fries when you're having fun. <laughs> we hope you've learned more about our food system and that we have yet again inspired you to make it out alive. We are so happy that we're back. We're not recapping this episode because it's just too long and we don't have time for that. If you want to remember what we just talked about, you can just go back and listen to it again. It's only like an hour of your time. <laughs> uh, hopefully not that long. And wheat. Love for you to join us for oh our my. next episode. <laughs> Love your mother, Earth Farm. Fresh food for underserved communities in Pierce County, Washington. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or facebook.com forward slash will we make it out alive. Until next time, will, will we, we make, make it, it out, out alive? alive? This is Amy the Poop Detective digging myself out. And this is Jen the Magical Mapper just saying goodbye as usual. Boring. <laughs> See you guys in two weeks.